I'm actually going to stand on the floor. Is that all right? I don't know if that's breaking the rules. Um, Pastor Pete here clearly doesn't know the first rule of going to church, which is you don't sit in the front row. Um, but that's, that's fine. That's okay. Um, yes, you have these at the back here. I'm not really going to say much about it, but um, I do run the training center, and there's a whole bunch of us get together, and we have a fantastic time um, learning more in, in depth, uh, studying scripture and learning theology. Um, but that's mainly not what I want to talk to you about today. Um, Pete booked me, um, oh, several months ago, and uh, I said, um, I said, what do you want me to preach on? Um, I used to be given a sort of passage or a subject, and he said, oh, visiting preacher, bring whatever you want. Now, in a lot of ways, that's absolutely lovely. There's massive freedom there, but it's also a real responsibility. You know, I've been doing a lot of sort of thinking and praying, like, Lord, what do you want to say to these people? This is like, oh, it's done with a blank sheet of paper. Um, it's an absolute pleasure and a privilege to, to be here, to be with you, to have a few uh, minutes with you on a Sunday morning. Um, I'm making, I'm starting off from two assumptions, okay? Here's the first assumption um, that most people in the room are Christians. We are trying to be disciples of Jesus Christ. We are trying to figure out, you know, what it means to follow Jesus and to to honor that and to, and to honor him. Um, if you're one of those people who's not quite there, you're still kind of checking out this Christianity thing. That's fine, because that's, you know, Jesus said, just, just, just consider the cost. Don't sort of rush into stuff. So that's okay. Either category, I hope that what I have for you this morning is going to be an encouragement. That's, that's what I more, want more than anything, is to be a kind of Barnabas to you this morning, to, to encourage you. My feeling is most of us, we're pretty good at the self-criticism stuff. Um, and, and I just want to sort of try and encourage you this morning in your, in your walk and in, in your faith. Um, here's the other assumption. Um, most of us, when we've been Christians for a while, or maybe it's right at the beginning, we naturally, we want to share our faith. Um, I didn't grow up in a Christian home, uh, and, I, and I came to faith when I was about 16 through an organization that's now called Urban Saints, but used to be called Crusaders. Um, that's that's kind of how I, I came to faith. And um, way back in the 70s, the sort of spirituality that I grew up in, it was very kind of black and white. You know, it was like, we the Christians have all the truth. Those non-Christians have no truth. You know, we have all the righteousness. They're all sinners. And, you know, I'm not criticizing anybody here because, you know, I, I owe everything to, to, to the people that sort of nurtured in me. But I'm going to be honest with you. As I've, um, as I've sort of grown and got older, it's not that my passion for Jesus has got any less. If anything, it's, it's more than it ever was. But it's just kind of mellowed a little bit. If we could have the, um, the, the slides up, that'd be great. Thank you. It's just sort of mellowed a bit. And I love now, um, this, uh, this is the title today, by the way, uh, being a parable or guilt-free evangelism. Um, I love this definition, which is attributed to various people, but I think maybe this is Guy Niles. He's, a, he's an American, um, who said this. The gospel is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Yeah? One of the things I find hardest in life is when I find people who don't share my faith, but they're better at stuff than I am. Do you know? Do you know? They're, they're kind of men who love their wives better than I love my wife, even though they don't know Jesus. It really annoys me, and I feel really, you know. And, and I kind of what I've, what I've grown to realize is that, you know, I'm not, I'm not a saint. I'm just a beggar who's found a source of bread. And... Because I found a source of bread, 
I want to share that because the bread doesn't run out. Yeah, you know, there's a, God's got an infinite, you know, bread's a kind of metaphor for the gospel. God's got plenty of it. It doesn't run out if you have it. I just want other people, you know, I'm not sort of, I'm not selling myself. I'm not saying like, look what, you know, what God's done to me or anything. It's just, you know, I am a sinful failure who's found this, this amazing treasure. It's wonderful. And I just want other people to, to find it. Now, that sounds really simple. Here's the problem. Uh, now, if you, if this doesn't happen to you, that's absolutely fine. In my experience, most of us, in trying to share this treasure that we found, most of us don't actually feel that we're very good at it. And, and it's a, a, certainly for me, it's a bit of a sort of source of guilt. Helen, my wife and I, we've sort of reflected over the years that we've got so much, we're so much better at getting other people into our sports and hobbies then we are getting them to faith. You know, I do a lot of running. There's loads of people out there that run because, you know, I've encouraged them and I've coached them and I've nurtured them and trained them and, and they're kind of like, you know, they're sort of doing marathons and stuff now. Way more people run than seem to know Jesus. And this is a source of, you know, frustration and guilt. This is, it's like, like, you know, knowing Jesus is much more important than, than running, but I seem to be better at, at that sort of thing. I had this, um, I had this experience just the, um, just the other day because, um, well, like a lot of people in Cornwall, we have a, um, a log burner in our lounge and it was the annual chimney sweep visit and the chimney sweep came and we were just sort of chatting as you do and I got him a cup of tea and um, he said oh who put your log burner in because it's fairly new and I said oh it's a guy called Simon Rutham and he said oh I know Simon Rutham yeah nice guy very religious I said, well, actually, I don't, I sort of know Simon a bit because I said, you know, I'm a Christian and I go to Hale Light and Life and I happen to know Simon goes to Helston Light and Life and, you know, he's a Christian as well. And, you know, the conversation sort of went on a bit and then it kind of, you know, just sort of petered out and he got on with the job. And it was one of those things where afterwards I started doing that. Ah, did I make the most of that conversation? You know, should I have pushed it a bit more? And I don't want to be one of those Christians who the minute anybody mentions something to do with religion, you know, they shove it all down your throat. I don't want to be like that. But equally, I want to, I want to, you know, I want to grab the opportunities and the conversations that we get. So, you know, there's the guilt. I'm thinking after this, Lord, did I handle that right? Should have done, should have pushed the guy more. He's, you know, he's obviously met some Christians. So it's, it's really hard. Let's start with the bad news and then we'll get on to We'll get on to the good news. Here's the bad news. Um, when we have been Christians for a while, um, we, we see the world in a particular way. And that's, that's, that's right and proper. C.S. Lewis famously said, he said, Jesus is not just the light of the world. He is the light by which I see the world. You know, and, and when we, when we look out there, I'm sure you've had experience of this. Sometimes you see wonderful things happening and you think, look, there, you know, people are made in the image of God, so they're capable of love and self-sacrifice and creativity. And isn't that wonderful? I see that. I also look out in the world and I say, look, there's the effects of sin. I can see it individually. I can, I can, I can, you know, see it corporately. I can see it in society. We interpret the world through the lens of our faith, and it makes sense. Now, that's, that's right and proper. And C.S. Lewis didn't, they didn't have this sort of terminology, but nowadays we'd say it's, we have a Christian worldview. It's the sort of set of values by which we make sense of the world as we, we look out to it. Now, that's great, and that's right, and that's proper. The bad news is, the longer we go on, the more, in a sense, potentially a gap opens up between us and our friends and neighbors who don't see the world that way, because they don't see the world that way. 
I've got for you um, a conversation which I'm just going to share very briefly. My, um, my eldest daughter, uh, she's 28, she works in uh, mental health education. And um, during the summer, she told me this story. She was sitting in her office. She wasn't part of this conversation, but she overheard two people in the office next to her talking. And uh, this, is the, this is the conversation. Um, it's very brief, if I can find it. Uh, yeah, first person. Ah, it's that big God festival thing up at Weybridge starting this weekend. Second person. Oh, yeah, all the God brothers go, don't they? First person. Yeah, lovely people, lovely people. Second person. Yeah, and some of the music's not bad either. First person. But, you know, when you look at the lyrics, it's weird. All about blood and the cross and crucifixion. Now, you know, when we sing songs about the cross, it totally makes sense to us, doesn't it? Because the cross is central to our faith. That's where we find forgiveness in Jesus dying. Yeah, it, it kind of makes sense. Try and put yourself in the mind of somebody who doesn't understand that. I don't want you to do this when you're singing because I want you to be lost in worship. But some other time, try substituting a different form of execution for the word cross in a song. When I survey the wondrous guillotine on which my saviour had his head sliced off. I mean, it's borderline offensive, isn't it? It, it, it kind of, it's it, it just like, What? I mean, it's, it's, it sounds like heavy metal lyrics. It's weird. You know, if you are not a Christian, you know, why do you keep going on about this blood and cross and blood running down? And it's, it's horrible. There's, there's this sort of gap between us because it makes so much sense to us if we've been Christians for a while, if we've been disciples of Jesus. Um, doesn't make sense to those that we're, we're trying to share <clears throat> our, our faith with. Um, I used to teach youth work at, at Moreland's College, at the Bible College, and um, I was always very sensitized to um, students using cliches in their essays. I'd always pick them up on it. And uh, one of their favorite cliches when it came to sort of talking about evangelism and sharing faith was, we've got to get out of our comfort zones and, you know, dot, 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 fill in, fill in the blank. Now, I know what they meant, and I wasn't, I wasn't being savagely critical, but here's the problem. When we're out of our comfort zones, we don't normally do stuff very well, do we? Because actually, mostly, we want to get back in our comfort zone because we feel really uncomfortable. You know, when I look at Jesus' ministry, there are times when I see opposition and I see difficulty and I see, you know, pain and suffering. What I don't ever see is cringing embarrassment, which I'm going to be honest, you know, over the years, believe me, I've paid my dues. I've done door-to-door, I've done street evangelism, I've been there, I've done everything, and that's the overwhelming feeling that I've too often had when trying to share my faith with, you know, people that are not really that, that interested, uh, is embarrassment. I don't ever see Jesus embarrassed. So, that's the bad news. That's the bad news. Um, what's the good news? Um, I have a suggestion for you. Um, which is, is, is this. To, I want to invite you to think of the story of your life. And there are so many stories uh, in this room. And, and you are still writing that story day to day. And I want to invite you to make it a parable. Now, to make sense of this, what I'm going to do is uh, I'm just going to divert for about five minutes and talk about parables and how they work. So now, for some of you, this is all going to be old hat, and you can just ease back and feel smug, and that's good. For some of you, some of this is going to be a little bit surprising, okay? Um, if you grew up 
in a Sunday school or a youth group. Some of you will. Some of you will have bypassed that in your story. Um, mostly, we tend to teach our children that parables are these lovely little illustrations and they have a sort of spiritual truth and, you know, the, usually it's a metaphor, you know, that the father is God and then the, the, the kid is, is us and, and, you know, we kind of make sense of them like that. Now, that's part of the truth with parables, but it's not the whole story. And, and the lovely thing about parables is they are so much more complex than that. Do you know, we know this, we know this because if Jesus was one of the greatest storytellers ever, we also know that sometimes people didn't get his stories. I don't know if you know the, the, the story of the, the sower, and it's one of the few uh, parables where there's an explanation in Scripture, in the Gospels. And there's an explanation, and I love this. You've got to use your imagination for this, because um, you imagine you know, Jesus, he, he's, a, he's a kind of classic first-century traveling rabbi, and he's got his, his entourage, his disciples, and he's out preaching and teaching. You can imagine him telling the story, and the disciples are standing around, yeah, preach it, Lord, preach it. And they sidle up to him afterwards. When everybody's gone home, they sidle up to him, and they go, Lord, Lord, you know that story you told? Yes, boys, what is it? We didn't get it. We didn't get it. Now, hang on. If Jesus has to explain the story, it can't be as as simple as as as, as we think. So, um, two particular ways that that um, parables work that I want you to uh, I want you to sort of uh, consider. Um, here's the first one. Some parables are like a joke. Now, I don't mean they're funny. What I mean is they set up a little story, and then there's a punchline that you don't see coming at the end. Um, would you like a joke? I got a I keyed into Google the other day, religious jokes, and I've got a joke for you, not written by me, I hasten to add. Here we are. A priest, a minister, and a rabbi want to see who's best at his job. So each one goes into the woods, finds a bear, and attempts to convert it. Later, they all get together. The priest begins, when I found the bear, I read to him from the catechism, sprinkled him with holy water. Next week's his first communion. I found a bear by the stream, says the minister, and preached God's holy word. The bear was so mesmerized, he let me baptize him. They both looked down at the rabbi, who is lying on a stretcher in a body cast, being attended to by by, uh, ambulance men. Looking back, says the rabbi, maybe I shouldn't have started with the circumcision. (laughs) Thank you. Um, (laughs) Thank you. You're very kind. Oh, yes, okay. Five out of ten for a joke. Um, See, here's the point. Here's the point. You, the, the way a joke works is you don't see the punchline coming. You set up a kind of, you know, there's, there's a kind of narrative in your head and then the sort of punchline comes and derails it and that's what makes it funny. Which is why if somebody, and you will know children are prone to doing this, insists on telling you a joke you already know, it's really difficult. You have to go, oh. it's like it's not funny when you know the punchline. So um, here's a story, okay? Um, here's, here's a story for, you know this story. Once upon a time, there was a man hitchhiking from Sinostal to Hale. Got a bad lift. He was mugged by the driver, beaten up, uh, assaulted, robbed, thrown out of the car on the edge of the A30. The next person to drive past was Pastor Pete. But he waved out of the car. Sorry, mate, I'm on my way to preach in Hale. Can't stop and help you today. And he drove past in the fast lane. The next person was Bishop David Roller, free Methodist bishop from America. He also waved from the car. I'm sorry, mate, can't stop. I'm off to see Bob in Hale. 
Then a guy pulled along, stopped, picked the guy up, took him to Trellis Hospital, stuck a hundred quid in his wallet, and said, I'll come back and see you in a few days. And that bloke was a Muslim extremist. Now, if you are feeling slightly offended at this point, or surprised, you're looking surprised, (laughs) you've got the story. We tell our kids the story of the Good Samaritan like it's about being good. We have that, you know, nice to people. We have that phrase, don't we, in our culture, being a Good Samaritan. I was a Good Samaritan at the weekend. I found somebody's keys on Godrevy Beach. I took them to the National Trust uh, Cafe. He rang me up and he said, thank you so much for handing my keys in. I'd have been absolutely stuffed without them. Car keys and a house key. You know, we have this phrase, being a Good Samaritan. What we miss in the story is that in Jesus' day, they hated the Samaritans. They despised the Samaritans. You never talked to Samaritans. You went, if you were going to northern Israel, you went across the Jordan and up to avoid going through Samaria. That's why the disciples are so shocked when Jesus is talking to a Samaritan woman. She's a woman. She's a Samaritan. What's going on? We lose that impact because for them, a good Samaritan, that's like a contradiction in terms. Do you want a posh word? Your posh word of the morning? An oxymoron. It's a contradiction in terms. You can't have good Samaritans. And so they're going like, what? You can't have a Samaritan as the hero of your story. We can't have a Muslim extremist. It's like it doesn't make sense. You're talking rubbish. Hey, so, and, and you have to go and work out why the story has the punchline and, and what that means. Incidentally, incidentally, um, sorry, this is just a quick aside. Have you seen the John Lewis Christmas advert? Yeah. Okay, well, you see, for those of you who have seen it, it was on the other night, and at the end of it, it comes. it's about Elton John's life, and it comes out as John Lewis. The logo comes up, and I said to my eldest son, I said, is this, the, is this the John Lewis Christmas advert? He said, yeah. I said, I don't get it. I don't get it. John Lewis don't even sell pianos. I don't get it. Now, my wife watched it and said, Darling, it's obvious. He's just reflecting on his life. It's his life backwards. And everything that's happened in his life comes down to the fact that he was given a piano for Christmas when he was five. It's really obvious. I said, but you see, do you see the genius? We're talking about the John Lewis Christmas advert because I didn't get it. That's the way parables work sometimes. Very rarely does Jesus give an explanation. People go away and they think, hang on a minute, hang on a minute. What does this mean? Right, so that's one way that some parables work. Um, Here's the other way. We tend to tell kids, parable, it illustrates truth. Sometimes it illustrates truth. Do you know what? Sometimes it obscures truth, so the truth seeps out as you think about it. Um, Let me give you a real-life example that's nothing to do with parables. Many of you will have seen this happen. I want you to imagine, you may have been in this position yourself. I want you to imagine uh, a young man who falls in love. Okay, this may have happened to you. If it hasn't to you, you will have seen it happen to other people. And he's absolutely in love with a young woman. Now, here's the thing. Supposing he rushes up to the young woman, who is completely unaware of his interest and affection, and says, I just want you to know that I think you are the hottest woman I have ever seen in your life. I'm obsessed with you. I can't stop thinking about you. I would like to marry you and have babies together. Now, probably the woman is going to like run a hundred miles, you know? And if I was, if I was encouraging a young man who was, who was seeking to, to win the heart of a young woman, I'd be like, oh, back off, mate. Too much, too much. You know, if you, if you love somebody, you've got to kind of, you know, you've got to play it cool. You've got to kind of 
turn up where she turns up, you know, like befriend her friends. If she goes to the gym, join the gym. Sounds a bit like stalking, doesn't it? But, but you know, just, just kind of, just kind of ease your way in, way in so that she kind of gets the idea that maybe you're interested in her. The full frontal approach. I used to know people that would do this at college. Nearly always it would be added with, God's told me we are to marry. Um, Invariably, the girl would go, well, he hasn't told me. Um, and that would be the end of it. Um, but, but, you know, you've got, to be, you've got to let the truth seep out because some truths are absolutely colossal. My father-in-law, um, my, my wife's dad, he um, came to faith in his mid-40s. And that was a really bittersweet experience for him because in some ways it was absolutely wonderful. He'd been a very successful businessman. He was, he was, um, he was quite wealthy. Um, he came to faith, and this was amazing. He'd had a bit of a sort of crisis, and, uh, you know, he found love and forgiveness and purpose. And being the sort of guy he was, he has to do everything 100%. So he actually ended up becoming a vicar. He's now, he's now retired, but, you know, that was his kind of all-or-nothing kind of guy. Um, here's the thing. The difficulty for him was actually saying, hang on a minute, if this is all true, does this mean I've lived the first 45 years of my life wrong? And the answer to that was not entirely yes, but to some extent yes. That was a, you know, a, a really hard thing for, for him to, to, to grasp and to take on board. And we see that with some of the stuff Jesus says. It's so monumental, it's so critical that actually he tells stories. And like the John Lewis said, but people have to go, wait, hang on a minute. What, what was the rabbi saying? If, if that is that, and that, what, was he saying that? And it makes people think and, and reflect. Um, one of the things we are um, invited to do, um, and this, this works with a, a lot of um, parables, is we're invited to think who we identify with in the parable. This is um, Rembrandt's picture of the prodigal son, the lost son. And uh, there's a wonderful book by a guy called Henry Nguyen who spent, literally spent a week sitting in front of the painting. And then he, he writes and he actually invites us in turn to identify with all three of the main characters. I mean, we tend to be invited to identify with the son. You know, we're sinners. We have to come back to God our Father. That's true. Of course that's true. And for a lot of people, that's absolutely their experience. Sometimes we can identify with the father. You know, how many of us at different times have our children... Either literally or metaphorically, they've wandered off and we, we love them, we pray for them, we long for them to come back and we wait for them to come back. And actually, we can identify with the Father. Here's a question for you. You know the little coda, the little bit at the end of the story, if you, I'm sure you know the story, where they have the party and the eldest uh, brother who stayed at home is really grumpy and annoyed. You know, if this was just a story about sinners coming back to God, why do you need that bit about the elder brother? Shall I tell you why it's there? It's there for me. It's there for me. I became a Christian when I was 16, and um, it was just as a potential wonderful world of unfettered drink, drugs, sex, partying, and everything else was, was opening up to me as a teenager, and it was almost like God put his hand on my life and said, sorry, mate, not for you. I've got other plans. Now, that's been great. You know, I've, I've known God nearly uh, all my adult life, and that's been absolutely wonderful. I'll tell you what I have a problem with, 
And I'm going to be really, really honest with you because I'm, I'm actually quite ashamed of this, but I'm going, to, you know, I'm going to get in the car and drive away so I don't have to live with it afterwards. Um, I'll tell you what I find a problem with is, is, is not, not that, not God having his hand on my life. Uh, and um, It's the fact that I've seen people who have done the whole, you know, drink, drugs, sex, money, ambition, power, everything to the nth degree. Then they become Christians and find Jesus. That's great. And then God gives them some amazing ministry and they're traveling all over the world speaking to thousands of people. And I'm going, oh, thank you, Lord. All those years of, you know, resisting temptation and trying to be virtuous and, you know, all of that that I gave up. And these guys who've done it to the nth degree, they fried their brains on drugs. And now you give them an incredible, exciting ministry and they're flying everywhere. Thank you very much. Now, usually when I've got my head into this place, God speaks to me, and he speaks to me through my wife, who says something along the, life, along the lines of, you complete muppet, what are you thinking? You may not have masses of money in the bank, but you've got enough, and in terms of the things money doesn't buy, God has so lavishly blessed you in this life, you idiot, can't you see what you've got? And at that point, you're like, yeah, you're right. Um, I'm the grumpy oldest brother. I'm the grumpy older brother. Why should you bless that guy over there? Really cross about it. Um, so, um, I want to start sort of um, bringing this sort of together and then we're, we're going to sort of uh, end it. Um, I'm going to tell you two stories. And what I want you to do is I want you to sort of hold these two stories just for a couple of minutes in, in your mind and compare them. Here's the first story. A few weeks ago, I was uh, on what I call tally duty. Now, tally, Talitha is my granddaughter. Is she cute or is she cute? She's two and a half, got my jeans, you see. Um, and um, I'm, I'm looking after her on a Thursday afternoon. And one of the things we like to do, um, Grandpa takes her to St. Ives. We get the train, most beautiful branch line in the world. We get to St. Ives. We walk down to the uh, lifeboat station. And in the lifeboat station, they've got one of those um, things that you roll coins down. Do you know what I mean? You let the coin go and it rolls down the spiral and disappears down the hole in the middle. If you've got a two-and-a-half-year-old, you can spend 15 minutes putting coins down those. I mean, you've only spent about a quid. You know, I love the RNLR. I'm happy to give them more, but, I mean, it's amazing value, value for money. So um, we do that. On the way down, we're walking into St. Ives, and there's this little sort of passageway where basically there's, there's sort of the, the, the harbour on one side and a wall on the other side. As we're walking down, I see this guy standing next to the wall with um, like a magazine rack. I think this is a bit odd. When I get a bit closer, I realize there's only one magazine in the magazine rack, the Watchtower. So for those of you not au fait with this, they're Jehovah's Witnesses, okay, doing street evangelism. Now, immediately, my brain goes, perhaps I should talk to him about Jesus. You see the guilt thing? And then my brain goes, no, you're looking after your granddaughter. How many hours have you spent talking to Jehovah's Witnesses? Just get on with the job. Look after your granddaughter. And, you know, so we do that. On the way back... I noticed that it's bizarre. It's almost like there's this invisible force field around him. The guy's standing here, and people are sort of walking along like, Jehovah's Witness, oh, eyes down, um, across the... And then, and then back, you know? And there's this sort of like secret space here that, that nobody's in. It's amazing. That's story number one, okay? Right, here's story number two. My children, uh, I have four adult children, and they like to mock me because... I'm on, um, I'm on Facebook. Now, if you know anything about social media, you will know that Facebook has become the preserve of us middle-aged people. The kids, they're all on my Insta, Snapchat, Gram thing stuff. 
I don't even know what it is, um, but I'm not on it. Okay, I'm on Facebook. We oldies, we own Facebook. And I'm a member of various minority groups, including the Classic and Vintage Racing Dinghy Association. And we are a group of mostly old men who like to restore vintage sailing dinghies. So this is my 1963 Wayfarer dinghy there, okay, which I spent a bit of time in the summer doing up, and I was kind of on Facebook talking to different people about how to do different stuff. Through this, I get into um, an email conversation with a guy who goes, great to see what you're doing. I've got Wayfarer number three. It's 1957 boats, one of the oldest Wayfarers in the world. And we're having this kind of email exchange, but you're not supposed to be interested in this, by the way. It's fine. Uh, we're having this email exchange. Um, and uh, at, at the end of it, I go, thanks for your help. By the way, if you um, come across anybody selling some Wayfarer sails, I could really do with some new sails. The ones I've got with a the boat, they're blown out, they're ancient, they're not very good. He emails straight back. I've got some sails you can have. They're not new, but they're in really good condition. So I said, oh, that'd be great. How much do you want for them? Nothing. I'll send them to you. I said, well, look, let, let me pay for the postage. No, it's all right. He said, I'm out of the country, but I'll get someone to package them up and courier them to you. When I get them, blow me, they're not new. This, this is like 300 quid's worth of sails here for nothing. I have found myself Googling this guy. His name is Paul DeSalis. And I'm, I want to, you know, who are you? Why have you done this? You know, you've, you've got me. There's a Paul de Salis as a merchant banker, but I don't think it's him. But perhaps he's, you know, there's a Christian Paul de Salis in Australia. Which Paul de Salis? I want to know who this guy is. Can you see the difference? You know, the kind of, the guy out on the streets, everybody's like, no, 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 no. Or the guy, do something, and people are like, why did you do that? I want to know why you did that. Yeah, if you sort of create a vacuum, you don't have to tell people, just, you know, I think people will say, I want to know why you did that. Um, I'm going to start to bring this into, uh, into land. Um, the, uh, the reason I was looking after my granddaughter was because I said they're four grown-up children. Uh, my eldest son uh, was married. Uh, this time last year, his wife was diagnosed with a brain tumor. Uh, so that's Tully's mum. She died in May. So that's why I have to look after my granddaughter on a, on a Thursday afternoon. Um, we've been amazingly looked after by our church in Hale. And um, so there's no criticism in, in, in what I'm about to say, but it's been quite extraordinary. I, I could preach several sermons just on, on going through this experience because one of the things we found is that people watch us, and I mean that both literally and metaphorically. Sometimes we'll be sitting in church and you literally just find people watching us. It's like, yeah, they're the family that had that tragedy. Um, but actually, quite often people will come up and they'll talk to us and they'll say, um, how are you guys getting on? Which is really kind. And then somewhere in the conversation, they'll say, how's your faith doing? Which is, is um, I mean, the short answer, by the way, is fine. Thank you. Um, what the, the, it's really what I call the Job question because what they're really saying is, I want to know how you've coped with this because one of the fears I think we all carry as Christians is, what is the biggest catastrophe that could happen to me that would shake my, my faith in God's benevolence you know, beyond the point of no return? What would it take to really shake my faith? What would I have to, to lose? Uh, and that's the question they're really wrestling with themselves and completely understandably, as I say, there's no, there's no criticism in this. So people watch us. And I really want to encourage you because you will be surrounded by people who are watching you and your life. And um, you will know this um, 
fantastic verse uh, from 1 Peter, and, and I, love, uh, I love the message. I love Eugene Peterson. He's great. Uh, uh, listen to this. If with heart and soul you're doing good, do you think you can be stopped? Even if you suffer for it, you're still better off. Don't give the opposition a second thought. Through thick and thin, keep your hearts at attention in adoration before Christ. And then this bit that we all like to, like to say. Be ready to speak up and tell anyone who asks you why you're living the way you are and always do it with courtesy. I want to invite you, my encouragement to you is, you know, yes, be ready. We, we need to have our arguments marshaled. We need to, you know, know how to answer those you know, top 10 questions about, about our faith. But I just want to really encourage you, if you authentically follow Jesus, if you live your lives, people will notice. I do genuinely believe this. We, we, people don't, we don't sort of articulate it this way. But actually, people, most people out there are asking this question in their heart. You know, how should I live? What is a good way to live? Is it about money? Is it about success? Is it about ambition? Is it about power? Is it just about being loved? What's the, what's the mix? Is there a spiritual side to it? And, and you can live your life so powerfully, people will ask you. And when they ask you, yes, be ready to, to give an answer. But in the meantime, just authentically Follow Jesus, because that is so, so powerful.